We will now be moving on to the main event for today's meetup, and I would like to introduce tonight's guest speaker, John Yablonski. John is a senior product designer in Detroit, currently building a dramatically more accessible world at boom, boom, sorry, supersonic. He's also the author of the book, Laws of UX. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm welcome to John. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me. I will go ahead and uh, share my screen. And if you could just let me know you're seeing it, we'll get started. All right, can you uh, see my presentation? Yes, we can. Excellent. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm, my name is John Yablonski. I'm a senior product designer at, at Boom Supersonic. Uh, I am based right outside of Detroit, Michigan. And today I'm really excited to share about how designers can use psychology to design better products and services. Um, a little bit more about me. I'm a multidisciplinary designer, uh, speaker, writer, and digital creator. Um, and really kind of my focus at, at Boom Supersonic is building, um, you know, interactive experiences within the cabin of this uh, plane, which will be uh, uh, be able to fly uh, at supersonic speeds. So very exciting. Prior to Boom, my focus was doing very uh, similar digital executions for um, the automotive space. So uh, spent um, quite a bit of time working on um, Cadillac, uh, some, you know, future model year vehicles and, and really kind of defining um, very new interactive experiences within the, the automotive space. But really, as a designer, I'm kind of interested in, in, in this kind of thing, not necessarily uh, landscaping or urban planning, but really the paths that people take through environments. Now, obviously, as a as a as a UX designer, that's very specifically around the digital environment. But it's really about how people can use information and per, and and perceive uh, and process information around them to really navigate spaces. And that interest in psychology and how people really use uh, visual information, visual cues to to inform decision making is really what's driven me to have an interest in this overlap of, of cognitive psychology and behavioral psychology and, and design. And it's really been a, a passion of mine for quite a while now and has motivated me to, you know, create a lot of, uh, of resources around that topic. Uh, and lawsofux.com uh, is, is definitely one of those resources that um, was an opportunity for me to really kind of hone in on my interest in this intersection between psychology and design and really kind of explore that. It was also kind of a resource that I didn't feel existed at the time, but really needed to as really a way to highlight these very important concepts that I think can help designers really build more intuitive um, products, digital products and services. It's also what motivated me to uh, write the book, Laws of UX, Using Psychology to Design Better Products and Services, which was really uh, an opportunity to just dive much deeper into these psychology concepts that I think are so important for designers to understand that come to us from the field of psychology. 
Uh, it was also an opportunity for me to, you know, talk about the psychologists that originated a lot of these um, psychology studies and 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 really kind of highlight uh, modern day examples that uh, tie back to these concepts uh, to really just help create a, a, a very practical guidebook for how UX designers can can apply these principles to their own work. Uh, the book covers quite a bit of chapters and really the 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 way these chapters are constructed is is really as a vehicle for talking to very specific psychology concepts. So they're they're really just kind of a um, a mechanism for getting at these core psychology concepts that I think are are you know very pertinent to our work as designers. And then of course, you know, it's impossible to really talk about the overlap of psychology and design without also talking about the ethical responsibility that we as practitioners assume when we begin to, um, you know, leverage psychology in our work. And then finally, a practical framework uh, for, for applying these principles to our own work. Today, I want to hone in on a few of these uh, chapters and, and kind of talk about um, really some of the concepts behind them. Beginning with Jacob's Law, which states that users spend most of their time on other sites. This means that users prefer your site to work the same as all the other sites they already know. Now, this comes from Jacob Nielsen at circa 2000 and very specific to the to the um, to the web, uh, which was the kind of premier digital you know, uh, technology at the time. But I think that really it's easy to zoom out and understand how this uh, Jacob's Law can really be applied to uh, any digital experience or product. And that's because the underlying psychology concept is, is, is a constant, and that is a mental model. So a mental model is what we think we know about a system, especially how it works. It's really how we use knowledge we already have from past experiences when interacting with something new. Now, when you apply the, this idea of mental models to the digital space, um, there's tons of examples. One of my favorites is that I point out in the book is, um, you know, take, for example, the, the classic control panel, which is pictured on the left. You know, these panels are typically adorned with toggles and switches and buttons, all the things that you would associate with a with a control panel. And then you can see how these directly influenced the digital equivalents on the right. This happens to come from um, a sticker sheet from Google's material design. And you can see how the you know designers of early internet form controls really took a direct influence. Um, in fact, kind of built upon the pre-existing mental model that we already had of toggles and switches and buttons to inform the digital equivalent um, on the right. Uh, and this is a, an example of leveraging mental models where they exist and then building on that to create something that feels much more intuitive um, right away. Another example uh, that I really love to point to happens to come from the automotive space. And that's, um, for example, uh, the shaping seat controls in the form of the actual seat. Uh, this happens to come from a Mercedes, I believe. And really what the designers have done here is made manipulating the seat much more intuitive by simply mapping the, the seat control buttons in the shape of a seat. We have a mental model of what a seat looks like. Um, and by shaping these buttons in the form of that seat, 
it's 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 very easy to understand which part of the seat you'll be manipulating by according to which button that you interact with. Moving into the digital space once again, I think um, you know a, a very ubiquitous ubiquitous example of this is found in e-commerce, right? So um, this happens to be from Etsy, but really it could come from any e-commerce uh, online store in that they follow very similar patterns and conventions. You're typically going to see product tiles that you know uh, are adorned with the photo of the actual product the title of the product, maybe even um, rating, and then obviously a price for the product. Uh, and that you you know that by clicking on that, you're going to get more information about that product. Um, if you choose to, to purchase that product, you know that it's going to go into your shopping cart, which is always in the top right corner. And even the concept, this motif of a shopping cart, comes from uh, our pre-existing mental models of putting physical product in a physical basket at a grocery store or, um, you know, uh, uh, any other equivalent physical retail shopping environment. So really it's designers leveraging pre-existing mental models and then building upon that to really allow for the interface to get out of the way as much as possible and enable customers uh, to these e-commerce platforms to do what they came there to do. Um, and that is the byproduct. This is a great example of really just kind of uh, you know building upon mental models and 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 avoiding what's known as mental model discordance, which is really what happens when something that we've got a pre-existing mo mental model around abruptly changes and we're you know uh, slightly disoriented in terms of how to use the product. I think one company that's always done a good job of avoiding mental model discordance is uh, YouTube, uh, and by extension, really Google. And that's because they, you know, they've always been uh, good about launching a product if it's like a redesign. Uh, in this case, uh, the YouTube redesign of uh, I want to say 2018, and um, really allowing for people to opt into this experience, and they can always go back to the to the legacy version of the app. But being able to opt in, get comfortable, and, and switch between the two if they choose to start to build or evolve their pre-existing mental model. And what they do by doing this is, is really just avoid the discordance that happens on an abrupt change, uh, which typically in the digital space happens with redesigns. There's also case studies of this going terribly wrong in the digital space. I think Snapchat's a really good example of this. They underwent a pretty major redesign, I believe back in 2017, 2018. And uh, there was lots of backlash around this because they basically redesigned the entire experience and, and, and rolled it out to all their users virtually overnight. Uh, and it, people were completely disoriented. They didn't know why these features that they used every time they opened the app had changed, moved to um, completely different locations within the application. And by and large, they had created quite a bit of um, mental model discordance around the app itself, which drove people to um, move to competitors like Instagram. And I would say that uh, you know that that um, mass kind of migration away from Snapchat, they've never quite recovered from that since. 
I think one of the core kind of, um, you know, psychology concepts that we should really consider around this is uh, user personas, right? So really user personas give us a great frame of reference um, that help us kind of break out of that self-referential thinking that I think team members have a tendency to fall into. I, as a user, uh, would think this or would do this. And the, the reality is, as, as designers, uh, or anyone on a team that's close to a product really isn't going to um, completely understand the needs of users without actually talking to them. So user personas are somewhat of a, um, a medium between kind of being able to identify what the goals and objectives of, of the actual use end user is, and then being able, being able to incorporate them into the design process in a very concrete way. Now, I, this is very much related to the next uh, you know, concept that I want to talk about known as uh, the peak in rule, which states that people judge an experience largely based on how they felt at its peak and at its end, rather than the total sum or average of every moment of the experience. I think it's very important. The, the, the psychology concept that underlies the peak in rule is known as cognitive bias. And, and cognitive biases are really systematic errors of thinking or rationality in judgment that influence our perception of the world and our decision making ability. You can think of them as mental model or I'm sorry, mental shortcuts that increase our efficiency by enabling us to make quick decisions without the need to really thoroughly analyze each and every situation. So. You know, scientists estimate that uh, approximately 95% of our cognitive capacity happens on a subconscious level. We're making uh, thousands upon thousands of decisions every day, and uh, most of which we're not even consciously aware of. And for the most part, it's our cognitive biases that kind of help us uh, quickly do that uh, without really uh, requiring us to spend a lot of mental effort to uh, perform uh, and really just get through the day. In the book, I really like to, to call out, you know, uh, very specific studies that kind of originate a lot of these psychology concepts. And in relation to the peak in rule, I think uh, this particular study uh, called When More Pain is Preferred to Less, Adding a Better End, which was done by Daniel Kahneman and his associates, uh, really kind of highlights the origins of cognitive bias. Uh, and in this, in this study, uh, Kahneman split participants into two groups. Trial one, who was to stick their hand into relatively cold water for about 60 seconds. And then trial two uh, group, which stuck their hand in the same temperature water for the same amount of time, but then dunked their hand in slightly warmer water for an additional 30 seconds. And what Kahneman found during the study and subsequent studies that validated the outcome was really that people judge an experience largely based on um, an emotional peak that could be a positive peak or a negative peak, and how the ending was of the experience. And that you they really use that to judge the in experience overall, as opposed to averaging each and every moment of the experience. Now, in the digital space, there's lots of great examples of this. Uh, some of my favorite come from the, the email newsletter brand um, MailChimp. Uh, they do a great job in a lot of ways of kind of introducing their brand at very specific key moments uh, throughout their product experience. So, for example, on the left, if you you know ever send a newsletter using Mailchimp, uh, before you send it off to your audience, you're presented with this 
confirmation dialogue, which, uh, you know, really could be a stressful moment when you're sending out an email newsletter because um, there's no take backs with the email. So uh, it's important to get it right. And maybe that would have, you know, that could be a stressful process uh, to curate that uh, and before you send it. So uh, MailChimp introduces a little bit of their brand by um, showing Freddie, the, 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 their mascot, the chimp, um, with his hand hovering over a red button. And the longer you wait to hit send now, the more vib visibly nervous Freddie gets. In fact, he even begins to kind of sweat. Uh, and, uh, and you can see that roll down his finger. And it's really just kind of like a way for the brand to introduce a little humor in, 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 a, in a key part of the experience that could be quite stressful. Another great example is once you've sent the email newsletter, you, they introduce a little bit of an Easter egg into the experience where you can actually high five Freddie. Uh, and you can continue to do so until his hand gets so red he refuses the high five anymore. And I think this is yet another example of, you know, capitalizing on the very end of the experience and using their mascot as a way to kind of celebrate with you as an end user that you've completed, um, you know, this task of sending out a newsletter. Now, of course, MailChimp isn't the only, uh, you know, brand that really understands this. I think another uh, great uh, brand that understands the value of, um, identifying, um, you know, how the peak in role interplays with their service is Uber. Um, and there's a great example or case study from Uber around their Uber Express pull app, which really highlights this. So what the Uber team discovered was that people were uh, between the point of ordering a ride and then the ride actually arriving, uh, people w once interviewed uh, were were saying that that was the most painful part of the entire experience. In fact, it was the part of the experience that most people would cancel and um, find some other means of transportation. So Uber dug into this, and what they discovered is that by doing a series of kind of um, you know uh, steps through a redesign app, they could really help to mitigate that drop off and reduce the 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 pain point around waiting for the ride. And the way they did this was by first introducing some uh, operational transparency. So really kind of providing more information around who your driver is, what they're driving, when they'll be there, right? Making that discoverability of that information a lot more engaging and interactive. And then finally, giving very clear progress indication as to when the driver will actually be there. And this is also related to a, a psychology concept known as the, the goal gradient effect, where people are, are a lot more uh, committed or um, they kind of accelerate their activity once they can see that they visually, um, their progression is, is much more closer to the end goal. One of the things that I, I try to do uh, as much as possible in the book is really tie, um, you know, design exercises or methodologies back to these individual concepts. And in, in the case of peak enroll, I think it's really important to highlight uh, journey mapping. So journey mapping is really invaluable for visualizing how people use a product or service through this narrative of accomplishing a very specific task or goal. As a visual person, you know, I really love the the kind of um, very clear visual, you know, nature of journey mapping because you can physically see 
the not only the the journey step by step that a uh, end user will go through to perform a very specific task, but then you can start to layer in these you know qualitative um, bits of information that help kind of inform where they are uh, during that during each phase. So, for example, you know. Uh, quotes that they they had during that experience or even kind of starting to map their kind of you know mental uh state during during a task or during a, a journey uh helps out kind of visualize where those emotional peaks or 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 um you know valleys are during the experience and then really kind of inform uh where they are leading up to the ending of the experience so you can really start to identify potential opportunities uh, for improving the experience by honing in on um, an emotional peak or drop, and then really honing in on what the you know the design experience feels like toward the end of uh, performing a task. The last one I want to talk about is Hicks Law, which states that the time it takes to make a decision increases with the number and complexity of choices available. So once again, kind of tying um, these principles back to uh, concepts from psychology, I think cognitive load is a very important one for designers to understand. And that's generally referring to the amount of um, used uh, mental resources or, or working memory resources. Uh, specifically in interaction design, it's referring to the amount of uh, mental resources needed to understand and interact with an interface. I love to kind of communicate this in two with these two simple diagrams. The first one being that reaction time is proportionate to the options available. So that might be, you know, how many things that a, a end user might have to decipher on an on an interface in order to kind of decide on um, what is most likely to get them the information they need, or or also if they have to make a decision between. Um, very similar options, like for example, from a pricing table, um, you know, the amount of options available is very heavily going to influence how long it takes for them to react. And the other important kind of concept to communicate regarding cognitive load is this idea of working memory buffer. Uh, so very similar to like, for example, computer RAM, where there's a finite amount of spaces available that you can occupy with memory or data. Um, and the more occupied memory there is, the, the slower the machine kind of starts to slow down. So um, just like if your computer has a lot of apps open and it starts to kind of slow down in its processing power, um, it turns out our, our brains work very similarly. So if you've ever walked into a room and forgot why you set off to that room to begin with, the likelihood of you um, kind of occurring some, uh, you know, uh, having to perform a lot of mental, you know, tasks in in route to that room is pretty likely. Uh, and like I said earlier, a lot of times um, we're making a lot of decisions even on a subconscious level and we're not even aware of it. Uh, and, and so that does a really good job of illustrating that kind of finite amount of uh, working memory buffer that we as human beings kind of have to, to cope with. Now, kind of applying this to the to the digital space and the physical space, there's lots of great examples, but I, I have to say this is probably one of my favorite. And this is this idea of like universal remotes, which even to those familiar with these remotes, it can sometimes be overwhelming. In fact, 
so overwhelming that, you know, this concept of grandparents remotes is, is a thing on the internet, probably one of my favorite things on the internet. And this is, uh, you know, grandparents or, or, uh, sons and daughters taping off, um, buttons on a, on these universal remotes for their grandparents, um, to help them use this actual interface. Right. So it's really eliminating all the visual clutter in it, in order to make this interface much more intuitive or, or, or usable for their grandparents. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a very great example of, of cognitive load, um, you know, actually being applied in real time. Now, th these remotes stand in very stark contrast to, say, for example, smart TV remotes, which have very minimal options. And, and, and really, the time it takes to make a decision on what button you need to press here is dramatically reduced. Now, moving into the digital space, uh, there's also lots of great examples of Hicks Law. I think uh, onboarding is probably one of the most significant. Um, and it, you know, I don't know how many. Uh, People here have, have used Slack before, I'm sure most of you, but really, if you go back and you think about your onboarding experience of Slack, it is unique in that instead of dropping you into a fully functional app and then take giving you a guided tour through that app that you have to click through, and like most people, you probably very rapidly click through that because you really just want to start using the app. Well, the team at Slack identified this and realized that they could create an onboarding experience that was much more aligned with how human beings actually learn, which is by doing and then gradually building upon pre-existing knowledge, right? So when you're onboarding, what Slack does is drops you into the app and then gives you an opportunity to interact with Slackbot. Uh, so, uh, you know, zero consequence kind of activity. And what you're doing in the process of this is learning the core functionality of the app, uh, and that is messaging. And it's only once that you've, you've done that, you, you begin to kind of get exposed to these additional portions of the app. So you, be, you, know, you begin to get that informational layer which shows you, okay, over here, by the way, is where your channels are and your direct messages, et cetera. Google is another uh, great example. The Google homepage is another great example of Hicks Law. Uh, which is ironically remained relatively unchanged since its inception. And that's because it's so simple. Uh, all you have to do is type in a keyword. And once you type in that keyword, you commit to what it is you're, look, you're searching in the, the internet for. It's only then that you begin to get these additional kind of um, toggles and controls that help you kind of hone in on specifically uh, the thing that you're in search of. So. Um, this is a great example of removing any friction from the interface and allowing for um, the core activity that is entering a keyword uh, to, to be as frictionless as possible. And it's only once that the end user's done that that they get all these additional options that, that um, they can begin to explore to find what they need. Once again, tying you know, design uh, exercises to these um, psychology concepts. In the case of uh, Hicks Law, I think card sorting is an, an incredibly valuable exercise uh, because it's really great for figuring out how items should be organized according to people's mental model uh, by having participants actually organize topics within uh, groups that make the most sense to them. Uh, 
Now, you know, as a designer, I've obviously, uh, you know, when we probably have all, all kind of taken a stab at what we think, for example, uh, a, a navigation, um, you know, information hierarchy should look like. Uh, and we, you know, maybe we organize those according to what we thought made sense. But uh, I remember early in my career, an eye-opening experience where card sorting was a way to start to understand how people um, that aren't biased like I am, they're not designers, they, they, they begin to kind of, um, you know, sort these cards or uh, information in a way that makes the most sense to them. And for me, that was an eye-opening experience because I start to realize that um, methodologies such as or card sorting exercises like card sorting are really invaluable for uncovering what the mental model of users actually is. And then really that gives you as a designer a great blueprint for designing something that's really custom tailored to, um, you know, where people are mentally. I mentioned early on that, you know, this psychology um, and design intersection it, it's really hard to kind of talk about this without also talking about you know ethical responsibility i think as designers it's critical that we consider how products and services actually have the potential to undermine the goals of the people using them i talk a lot about this in the book but it really kind of goes back to this um, little contraption known as the skinner box a aka the operant conditioning chamber and this was um, a contraption uh, invented by um, the American psychologist B.F. Skinner to really conduct experiments on um, small animals like pigeons and rats in, with the end goal of, how, uh, of exploring how behavior can be shaped through um, stimulus and then reward. So um, there was all kinds of variations of this contraption, but really the, the uh, end goal is the same stimulate the animal and then reward them based on very specific behavior and in the process explore how that behavior can be shaped in a reliable and consistent way you know i think it's one it's very important that as designers we consider how the same kind of um behavior shaping can also happen in the digital space and that could be completely unintentional but sometimes unfortunately intentional as well and it's, it's one of those things that as designers, we should be cognizant as possible. And we should also be cognizant of its, of its potential drawbacks. So um, one of the examples I love to point out is the pull down the refresh pattern from Twitter, which is pretty convenient if you're a Twitter user and you want to refresh your feed. I think the other, the, the, the problematic part of this pattern is that it can be quite addictive. Um, you know, in, because in this, ties directly back to the operant conditioning chamber because really what you're doing is performing an action and getting a variable reward at the end which is in fact how bf skinner realized he could shape behavior compulsive behavior and that was always you know um, the, the end reward was always varied so it could be um you know uh, food and water it could be nothing it could just be a little bit of water and, and that shaped compulsive behavior in the animals. If you were to apply that to the apply that to the digital space, and um, every time you pull down a refresh, you get something different in your feed. It could be posts that you're tagged in. It could be um, you know tweets from people that you follow. The point is, it's always different, and that can um, lead to a lot of compulsive behavior. 
Another great example of how um, you know digital technology can really shape the behavior of people. That's things like uh, patterns like autoplay, which you know um, are incredibly convenient if you don't want to get off the couch and or you know you you don't want to lift your finger and stop the next video from playing. Um, but it can also lead to a lot of um, you know uh, compulsive behavior in terms of binge watching uh, videos. And you know, I think you can make a great argument that people's—it's their prerogative; they can do whatever they want. But um, I think at the end of the day, brands should be cognizant of how this might shape and influence how people feel about their service, because um, you know, people uh, aren't going to think as fondly about YouTube or Netflix when they um, realize that they've just binge watched um, hours of of entertainment, and um, it's taking them away from their goals. Uh, entirely. So it's one of those things as designers we need to be c cognizant of and and be aware of 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 you know how that might influence or shape behavior, even though it's an incre incredibly convenient pattern. And of course, there's the ubiquitous like button, which is essentially on almost every social media platform to some variation these days. And I think this also speaks to behavior shaping because it it, it kind of uh, ties in with uh, human uh, the human desire for social affirmation, right? So when you put something out there that perhaps it's a photo of yourself um, or your family or something that you're doing um, and you and you see people respond by hitting that like button, for many people that that provides a little bit of a dopamine response and it makes you feel good and it compels you to do it again. Um, it also invests you emotionally in the platform, and that could be um, that could go that could go terribly wrong as well. Uh, specifically around you know the young adults, the 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 people in our societies that are still kind of uh, you know forming who they are and realizing where they fit in into society. I think all these patterns and many many more speak to this idea in the tech industry of move fast and break things which we've certainly done, right? We've moved very fast over the last several years and we've, we've broken a lot of things too. And I think that, um, you know, the science, the research is beginning to catch up with the technology and point out thing where that can go terribly wrong. So, you know, techno utopianism, uh, you know, it has its drawbacks and I think we're starting to kind of uh, identify where those are in our society. I think this also speaks to organizational focus over time. This is one of my favorite kind of simple diagrams from uh, Jesse Weaver that highlights how, you know, teams, organizations, you know, they set out to kind of really tackle human-centered problems. You know, this could be a startup that has a great app idea and, um, you know, they're really, it's all about, you know, solving a, a, a human problem in a human-centered way. Uh, but over time, that could be through an um, acquisition, that could be through going public. Um, those those kind of goals organizationally, they start to kind of shift over to business-centered problems. It's, it's all of a sudden, it's about growth uh, and expansion. And I think that, um, unfortunately, during this shift, you know, the focus of these digital products can, can you know, kind of get misaligned with what they set out to, to solve to begin with. I think this speaks to, uh, you know, really how we define success in, in the digital product world, right? So uh, we have metrics like daily active users, 
monthly active users, time on page, time on site. And these are all great quantitative metrics, but they're not really telling us, you know, how people are, why people are behaving a certain way. They're really only telling us, you know, the numbers. What exactly are they doing? They're not telling us why. And they're not really telling us, more importantly, how products are actually impacting their lives at the end of the day. So, for example, I gave uh, the, you know, the autoplay uh, feature uh, in YouTube. I highlighted that earlier. I think that's a great example of, yeah, it might be incredibly convenient, but how is it actually impacting people's lives at the end of the day? And last but not least, I talk about in the book how we can apply these principles in our work um, every day as designers. I think um, you know designers can in internalize and apply psychology principles and then articulate them back through this concept of, of design principles. So one of my favorite things about the Laws of UX project overall is just being able to um, you know really kind of create these these beautiful visual representations of these uh, psychology concepts. And then seeing back people put these up on their walls, which to me signals that they're talking about them with their colleagues. They're really kind of, you know, uh, embedding this into their, their process, into their design process. And it's been, you know, incredibly kind of uh, rewarding for me uh, to see this happen and know that designers are taking psychology concepts much more seriously in their own, in their own work. And this is certainly one way to introduce these concepts into a, a design practice. I think another way, and, and, and probably a much more effective way, is to in operationalize them through design principles. And in the book, I point out a few examples, uh, this being one of them. Uh, so let's just take it, it, for example, clarity over abundance of choice. I think that, it, you know, to begin with, pretty clear clarity even over abundance of choice so this mechanism of even over makes this principle much more actionable right we value clarity even over the abundance of 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 options or choice right and then validating that through this principle of hicks law so according to hicks law we know that the time it takes to make a decision increases with the number and complexity of choices available so now you have a principle, you have a validating law, and the last piece that makes this um, principle that much more actionable is rules. So in order to achieve this, and these are just examples, but uh, limit your choice to no more than three items at a time. Uh, provide brief explanations when useful that are clear and no more than 80 characters. So these are just um, you know very simple examples. You'd want to make these very specific to your product or service. But the idea here is that you're um, you know describing a principle in these three part these these three mechanisms of of communication. All right. Once again, I, I talk about all this and and a lot more in my book Laws of UX: Using Psychology to to Design Better Products and Services. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, John. Um, let me just quickly share my screen. Um, so, um, thank you so much for your insightful talk. A few of our attendees have sent through their burning questions, so I'll just jump right into it. Sure. 
Our first question is from Brad, and he asks, how would we decide precedents when contradicting aspects of these laws meet? For example, sticking to a complex interface because it is how experienced users are used to it, Jacob's Law, versus scaling down complexity to accommodate new users and reduce decision time, Hicks Law. It's a great question. And I think really it comes down to, you know, there will quite often, in my experience, um, be contradicting laws to some degree. Uh, but more often than not, there is also a predominant um, kind of, you know, laws or, or, or principles from psychology that we can lean on. And, and in general, I think it's important to remember that these are just guidelines. Um, they're not mandates. So, you know, it's important to still um, rely on your qualitative research, still conduct your user interviews, still identify you know, the needs and goals of, uh, and understand your end user. Uh, and only then can these guidelines really kind of help to inform your thinking. Uh, and I think, you know, through the process of talking to people, it, it'll become very clear where, you know, these principles should be, how they should be prioritized when multiple, multiple apply, even if some might contradict each other. So, you know, I, I do get this question a lot because, you know, the, it, the general kind of, um, you know, it, it could be it could be perceived as like all these principles should apply to every experience. And I think that's just simply not true sometimes. Like really, it's, um, you know, very uh, you're going to rely on some more than others uh, in every product experience that you, you, you know, you build. And there, it's always going to be different depending on the product and service. Thank you, John. So our second question is from Jonathan and they asking, in your research, did you find that operant conditioning is the same principle that slot machines and gambling are predicted on? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, there's some really great, um, you know, research and um, and writing around that concept. So the the kind of correlation between um, you know behavior shaping and uh, you know behavioral psychology and how that applies to gambling, casinos, slot machines, all of the above, there is a lot of really great kind of correlation there. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll follow up and, and send out a, a really great book that I, um, it's not coming to mind immediately that was written around this, uh, this topic, but it's actually kind of appalling how much correlation uh, casinos kind of build on from behavioral psychology. And, you know, it's I don't think it's a coincidence that the, the even the physical action of pulling a lever, like, for example, on a slot machine, is very similar to like the pull down the refresh pattern in our digital products. It, it's um, it kind of it, it not only does it mimic the same, you know, physical behavior, but it produces a very similar outcome. And I don't think that's by coincidence at all. And our next question is from Yaku asking, tell us about your journey of becoming a published author. How did it happen? You know, I, I'm incredibly fortunate in that, um, you know, I had a very uh, supportive, great editor reach out to me and say, you know, um, I saw your website, Laws of UX. I, you know, it's, I see that it's been incredibly valuable for a lot of people. 
And I want to work with you and see how we can turn this into a book. And so um, for me, I was very hesitant uh, to do that. And But then I realized that it would be a very great opportunity to go much deeper than the website ever could. You know, the website was always intended to be a very kind of um, quick reference, uh, never really a deep dive into individual concepts. And, and so the book was really that opportunity. Talk about the psychology behind each individual concept, because I think that um, designers should understand their kind of their historical background, like not only in design, but the origins of uh, some of these psychology concepts themselves, who the psychologists are, what were the originating studies? I think these are all great things for designers to know. And then also, you know, of course, the book was a great uh, way to, to point out a lot of examples, um, tertiary or related um, concepts, and, and, and really kind of tell this narrative around the intersection of psychology and design. So, um, you know, that, 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 and it really built upon the idea that I wanted to create a resource that I just didn't think existed yet. So, um, cause I needed that and was looking for it and couldn't find it. And so that was kind of like the origin story of laws of UX. And that naturally just kind of evolved into, um, you know, being contacted by a, an editor at O'Reilly and, and taking on the journey of writing the book. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, writing a book is, uh, can, is a very daunting process. It was a year of my life that I dedicated to doing this on top of, you know, working full time as a designer. Uh, I'm a dad, I'm a husband, uh, you know, I have a lot of things happening, but um, I just found so much value in allowing myself to just dig as deep as I possibly could into this kind of overlap of psychology and design. And, um, you know, I, I, yeah, it was, uh, it, it was, I have a lot to say about writing books, but, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I learned a lot in the process of doing it. Um, and our next question is from Catherine. They're asking, um, I've been relying on lawsofux.com since um, before COVID and realized that the laws have grown from 18 to 21, if I'm not mistaken. Can we expect laws of UX to grow more in the future to include other gestures, principles, or heuristics? For example, the other heuristics from Nelson or Norman, or are you taking a quality over quantity approach and limiting the amount of laws used regarding content consideration? Yeah, uh, definite, definitely taking a quality over you know quantity approach. I think that... Um, you know, the, the, this overlap of, of psychology and design is so expansive and the, the field of psychology itself has multiple kind of disciplines even within it or, or you know, um, fields. So it's such an expansive topic and there's so many things that I think designers can learn from this. I, I my intention is to continue growing Laws of UX um, and really, in a way, Laws of UX is a little bit of a personal uh, discovery or personal, my own personal journey, uh, in, in really kind of highlighting the principles in my experience in my career, uh, spanning over the years that are the most relevant, the most pertinent. Um, so there is a bit of a curation process happening too. 
but I've always been really cognizant of, you know, not putting everything possible in there because I, yeah, I could certainly do that, but um, I think it would diminish its value. So it's been a very kind of conscious effort to curate, um, you know, loss of UX and really kind of take a lot of time with each individual concept that, that makes its way in there. Our last question, um, what can we look forward to in terms of different user experience with Boom Supersonic, if you can speak about any of it? Yeah. You know, I there's a lot that I can't speak about, but the one thing I will say that's been um, somewhat of a continuous thread in my career is that I love, as much as I love digital products, I love this kind of intersection of digital and physical spaces, right? So, you know, human interaction within a physical product or within a physical environment with a digital interface, I think is just super um, interesting to me. And uh, and as far as Boom Supersonic goes, I think that they're, they're making great strides at uh, reimagining what the passenger experience will, will look and feel like um, in the air. So for me, this is just a great opportunity to dive into the, the kind of thing that I love doing. Uh, and I was quite frankly, I was doing the same thing at, at um, General Motors as well. Um, it's what excites me about the future of technology and interaction, to be quite honest with you. And um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the one thing I'll say about Boom is that they're, they're definitely striving to reimagine what the in-flight 